0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello, and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. And if you're not already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. This week on the podcast, as tension with China over Taiwan reaches new levels of uncertainty, and as the U.S. continues to figure out how to handle a long-term strategic challenge from China— we're going to look in depth at the condition, ambitions, and strategy of the Communist Party leadership in Beijing. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Michael Pillsbury. Michael is a long-standing scholar, commentator, and policymaker on China. He's held positions in multiple U.S. administrations, including in the Pentagon and the State Department. And he served on the staff of the U.S. Senate, authoring influential reports that have helped shape U.S. policy toward Beijing. He's been the director of the Center on Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute in Washington, Since 2014, and he's the author of several books, the most recent of which was The Hundred Year Marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. But was not only a bestseller, it was very widely cited by key figures in the Trump administration as they sought to reorient US policy towards China. Michael Pillsbury joins me now. Michael, thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Michael, let me start if we go with the immediate situation. Earlier this month, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan to Great consternation in Beijing. The first, of the most U.S. official visit to Taiwan since 1997, when Speaker Newt Gingrich went it was seen as an act of defiance, a provocation by Beijing. Of course, China doesn't recognize the independence of Taiwan and has pledged to reunite the island with the mainland and by all necessary means. In response to the visit, we saw not only angry rhetoric from China, but dramatically stepped up military drills with all kinds of disruption to shipping, made all kinds of rather scary live fire drills all around the island. And the tension even now continues and concerns are mounting that this Maybe the prelude to some more dramatic action. What's your take on this? Is this just posturing by China, or do you think there is a real risk here that this could represent perhaps the most significant escalation we've seen, at least for 25 years?
1: Well, as you mentioned, Jerry, my duties over the last 40 or 50 years as a China specialist have been to try to interpret Chinese behavior to Americans in the White House and the Pentagon and so forth, who really don't speak Chinese, have probably only been to China once or twice, and they tend to have a strong case of what I call the mirror image syndrome, that they project what they know about the American foreign policy and national security system. They project that onto China. And so my life's work, in many ways, has been to correct this mirror imaging. So when you raise an important question like, is this just a posturing or could there be a real war? Or is this more serious? And why are the Chinese doing this? I think the first thing to say is the White House is definitely puzzled. There have been a number of statements now, beginning with Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, that China is overreacting. There's no need to do this. There's been no policy change. We still abide by the one-China policy. Why Nancy Pelosi said she abides by the one-China policy. So the mystery Or the puzzle for a China specialist to answer is why is this American comment not working? In fact, I believe it's making the situation worse because the more the Biden White House tries to dismiss China's concerns, the more they're provoking China into an attitude of frustration and even anger that their views and their newfound power compared to 25 years ago is not being recognized by the Americans. So, I see a possibility of escalation. Particularly worrisome, Jerry, is the reaction in Taiwan, where they take this all as basically a joke that there's too much bluff has happened in the past, too many tantrums have been put on by Beijing, so therefore we can afford to ignore all this ourselves. So, when you've got complacency in Washington, complacency in Taipei, and anger in Beijing, I think that's a recipe for a disaster.
0: So, I mean, without wishing to scare people or speculate irresponsibly, how do you think this could unfold? One thing I'm particularly interested in is what's going on? Taiwan, after all, has been Taiwan. For seventy years, the U.S. has shifted its recognition, obviously, to official uh, communist China in the nineteen seventies. But for the last forty or fifty years, the status quo has been unstable but sort of settled. Why do you think there is this now this risk of turbulence here? What's going on?
1: Well, a number of factors are at play. The most important is China's newfound sense of being a global power, basically equal to the United States. This was not the case back. 30 or 40 years ago, when the arrangements over Taiwan and our recognition of China with conditions took place. At that time, China was roughly 10% of our GDP. Our level of trade was quite low. When Nixon and Kissinger made their first visits, there was basically zero trade between the U.S. and China. There was also zero foreign direct investment. When you fast forward to today, from the Chinese point of view, they have been transformed. They are now 70 to 80% of our GDP. Their military forces are comparable in some ways to ours. Their number of space satellites launched every year sometimes surpasses us. They're quite certain that we are in steep decline. We kind of mirror each other. We have a lot of commentary that the Chinese economy is hopeless, they're going to collapse. They have no real chance to get back to their old growth rate of 10%. But on their side, they see us the same way. I have to go through meetings in Beijing over and over, where it's explained to me in a very patronizing tone, you Americans are finished. You're on the way down. Your economy is a mess. Nobody likes you anymore in the world. We Chinese are on the way up. This affects their view of Nancy Pelosi's visit. In the past, For example, when Newt Gingrich visited in 1997, he also went to Beijing. In his discussions with him, he was essentially asking permission, can I visit both Beijing and Taiwan? This is quite different from what is happening now. A far more powerful China is now not being consulted by Nancy Pelosi about her trip. She did not go to Beijing. She had no intention of visiting Beijing, as a matter of fact. So that's part of Explanation to your question, Jerry, of why now. It's a far more powerful China and they feel they've been insulted. The term they're using is egregious violation of the one China principle, which is very obscure and ambiguous to outsiders. But to China, the one China principle is the only reason they have diplomatic relations and trade with us at all. But very few Americans know the details, which were kept top secret for 30 years of what exactly the one-China principle or the one-China policy, as we call it, what exactly it is. This is still very
0: little known, even among the highly sophisticated consumers of the news. What are the options for Xi Jinping here for China, really? One has to assume that the costs of an all-out military assault on Taiwan, extraordinarily high. Taiwan is an island with territory that is quite defensible. It's got a significant population, 22 million people. It's got significant military capability, thanks in large part to what the US has been doing. An amphibious assault on an island the size of Taiwan is not really something that's been, I think, attempted since the Second World War. And on top of all that, the economic disruption for China from an all-out assault, both in terms of the disruption to the Taiwanese economy, Taiwan, as we know, is a hugely important supplier of technology to the world, in particular semiconductors. That would be incredibly disruptive, both to China and, of course, to the rest of the world, too. But also, presumably, the response to the rest of the world. We've seen NATO, the United States and its allies has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the Chinese economy is much more integrated into the global economy and much bigger in the global economy than Russia's. So one would assume there would be a kind of a reaction there. So there would be tremendous costs would there not of an all-out military assault. You know, as angry as they are, as you've said, and as opportunistic as they may be that might actually that would that would probably deter China right now. Well, I think all the points you are making would be used by the moderates in Beijing to tell Xi Jinping
1: don't do it. The losses could be extraordinary. Our economy could be set back 50 years. We can be punished in unknown ways by the Americans. There'll be boycotts against our exports. Now is not the time. You can make a list of 10 or 20 arguments that if you and I, Jerry, were speaking to Xi Jinping from the foreign ministry of China, we would like all these matters concerned. Then after we finish talking, we're going to have a group of people also tell Xi Jinping the other side of it. That's the group I focused on in my last two books. The hawks in China, for lack of a better word, they use that word themselves. Ying Pai is their name for themselves. They would say, President Xi, you are responsible for the unity of China. We have Tibet, we have Xinjiang, our country is unified. This is our historic destiny for 3,000 years. But now, the Americans don't take you seriously. And unless we have a show of force, or even begin an invasion, or do something militarily, you will be disrespected for—they actually use this word— You will be disgraced for 10,000 years because you have lost the unity of China. That's what's at stake. President Xi, here are six steps we can take. Start this, do this, do this, and we guarantee you, our assessment of the Americans, they will back down. They have not promised to defend Taiwan. They have no troops there. They have no ammunition stored there. They don't practice with the Taiwan military at all, ever, since diplomatic relations. They have no command center anymore in Taiwan. Taiwan is weak for the following four or five reasons. And Xi Jinping will be caught between the Jerry Baker, Michael Pillsbury, Chinese moderates, making our points, and then the Hawks, who, by the way, can stage a coup and overthrow the leader of China. They have what they call the 10 Great Power Struggles in the history of the Chinese Communist Party since 1921. And in these power struggles, the role of the military and the security forces who can arrest somebody, like in 1976, arresting Madame Mao and the Gang of Four, which which she was a member. That was done in secret by the security services. The Hawks tend to be better positioned within that group. So you tell me, Jerry, will Xi Jinping listen to you and me and our wise counsel, or will he take one of the steps to begin going down the path of escalation militarily? I myself am worried enough about the power of the Hawks that the way I advise American presidents is hope for moderation from China, but realize this Hawk
0: team is in there and they're deadly serious and they're not afraid to start a war. Let's take a short break right there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Michael Pillsbury. And we'll be talking about China's economic and political conditions and whether conflict between the US and China is inevitable. Stay with us.
1: If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time
0: Do you think the US has done enough to alter that equation? You just said there in your summary of what the Hawks would be saying to him is, look, there's no US forces in Taiwan, the US isn't going to fight. Do you think that strategic ambiguity has now essentially been broken and there is a pretty entrenched sense in China that actually, you know what, the US is not really going to do anything? And if so, what more could the US do to deter China from doing something aggressive?
1: Well, that's a very important question. And I think what's been happening Very hard for Americans to grasp how we're perceived by others. But I think we've been challenging the one-China policy almost inadvertently. The first time it happened, it was very dramatic for me because I was in Trump Tower in the Trump transition team when President-elect Trump took a phone call and then said, I've been speaking to the president of Taiwan for eight minutes. She's a wonderful person. And a press release was put out from transition team headquarters using the word president of Taiwan. And at that point, I was brought in to explain the history of the whole thing. President Trump then negotiated for almost three months until he said, President Xi Jinping has asked me to observe the one-China policy, and I'm going to abide by it, almost as a favor to China. Then Xi Jinping was willing to come to Mar-a-Lago. There's been a number of steps since that time that makes the Chinese think, especially the hawks, that America is deliberately challenging us because they believe in Washington that we're weak. One of the next really shocking things was to send a cabinet secretary of health and human services, of all things, Jerry, to visit Taiwan, Then to send an undersecretary of state. Then a huge decision was kept secret for a while to deploy U.S. special forces, a very small team of special forces, into Taiwan, wearing combat fatigues. Special forces, as you know, are for stay behind organizing guerrilla teams. Taiwan then revealed it. The Wall Street Journal, actually, was the first to cover the story. That was a huge test in Beijing's mind. Combat Americans, even if it's only 10 or 20, are here on Taiwan, our territory, without permission and done secretly. There's about 10 things that have been done. The Biden team has continued this. So we've got a wary, even paranoid group of Chinese hawks with direct access to Xi Jinping who have a case that the Americans are playing the Taiwan card, as the Chinese media puts it. And they're trying to block China becoming the number one economy in the world. And they're trying to disrespect, if you will, the achievements of China over the last 30 years. This is what's moving us down the path toward
0: war. Are we at risk here then of having produced the worst of both worlds in the sense that we're both provoking China with all these actions you've described without actually deploying or having ready even the military strategic wherewithal to respond and to to, to actually stop China from taking aggressive action?
1: Raise your right hand, Jerry. I hereby make you an official China expert. (laughs) You're exactly right. It's really that simple. It's that simple. You get it. We are at the worst of both worlds. Now, if we do the common sense thing from our military point of view, here's an island under threat. They're a democracy. Nancy Pelosi's visited. We need to have joint exercises with our military. So our Navy needs to meet with Taiwan's Navy soon and practice. Number two, we need a team to be on Taiwan that lives there that'll do joint war planning like things were before 1980. Number three, we need munitions and liaison personnel to be stationed on Taiwan as a tripwire, if you will, but also a combat coordinator. All this has to happen now to enhance the turns of Taiwan. Most American-China experts, including me, would say if you do all that, you're really playing into the hands of the hawks. You're saying, yes, you do intend to fortify Taiwan with American forces. Now, something in between would be one or two American carriers coming together in the South China Sea, selling more aggressive weapon systems to Taiwan. Congressman Mike McCall has revealed he believes there's a backlog of over a billion dollars worth of weapons requests from Taiwan that have not been forwarded to his Foreign Affairs Committee in the House. So there are steps in the gray area in between. But once again, we're testing the one-China policy which we haven't really explained to the Congress or the American people. What exactly is this one China policy? Is Taiwan part of China? In which case, legally, how can we defend it? How can we put US forces there or do joint exercises? Or is Taiwan somehow not a part of China? In which case, we have a moral obligation to defend a democracy to the death, even against the nuclear power. This is the dilemma that that your question implies Uh, you're aware of the ironically disastrous situation we're moving toward. I want to talk
0: a lot about the wider situation in China itself, because we've talked a lot about the immediate question of Taiwan. There is a view that this is a particularly dangerous moment, because China might be sort of peak power, as it were, and that having been rising, China certainly is an economic power for the last 30 years after the reforms that Deng Xiaoping introduced uh, the economic reforms in the 1980s. China's economy opened up, as you said earlier, astonishing rates of growth, 10% rates of growth, become the second largest economy in the world by some measures. But some people even say the largest in the world. It has its huge military. But that period of extraordinary expansion and that period of – and this you talk a lot about this, obviously, in your book, The 100-Year Marathon – that might be coming to an end or might even have come to an end. We've seen a dramatic slowdown in growth. Now, partly that's COVID related, but there are other things going on too. We've seen rising challenges to China's power, perhaps in the region in a way that we had not seen over the time. Give us your sense of where China is on this trajectory. Is it still in very good shape in this 100-year marathon? Give us a sense where they are right now on that long-term trajectory, you think.
1: Well, this is where I take my fate in my hands because I disagree with the Wall Street Journal editorial board about the Chinese economy, so
0: this is called free expression. You're free to.
1: <laughs> I'm afraid I'll be plenty. I mean, Even if you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite economist in China is a fascinating fellow who became the vice president for research of the World Bank and the chief economist of the World Bank. He was originally from Taiwan. He defected to the mainland. Through special contacts, he got a PhD from University of Chicago. So he was trained as a highly conservative. <laughs> economist. He has written six books in English all about how American economic theory cannot explain the rise of Chinese growth rates. And he puts forward his own view, I think some in China, but his name is Justin Lin, L-I-N. I I think Justin Lin's view is uh, some people somewhat sarcastically say he deserves a Nobel Prize for his books and his explanations and his advice to the Chinese government. The advice has been foreign direct investment brings with it technology and export market and competitiveness. So Deng Xiaoping got onto this quite early in the 80s. Do anything you can for foreign direct investment in high tech that China can absorb and then create its own export industry. The 100-year marathon is a Chinese expression. What really happened was they tried in the 50s and failed badly to catch up and surpass America. That used to be their slogan. They tried again under Deng Xiaoping and they succeeded. In part because of the World Bank opening its largest office in the world in Beijing. In part because many Nobel Prize winning economists went down the Yangtze River on a boat cruise in 1985. This is now a topic, you're a hero if you were on that boat cruise. Chinese economists basically adopted this idea. Foreign direct investment is everything. So when that comes to foreign policy in Americans, it means the Americans have played the crucial role in building China up for 30, even 40 years. We must not lose the American FDI. We mustn't have Goldman Sachs, for example, which has three or four offices in Beijing. We must cultivate the people in charge of foreign direct investment in China. And they've succeeded wildly. Nobody even knows. One estimate is a trillion dollars through the American stock markets Another estimate is there's another trillion dollars of private equity and holding Chinese bonds. But there's an economist at Bloomberg, one of my favorite economists, named Tom Orlik, O-R-L-I-K. He's got a book called Why the Bubble Never Bursts. He's very bullish on the Chinese economy, that the leadership recognizes their problems and then corrects them so that China does not collapse. His earlier book on indicators, how to understand the Chinese economy through real indicators, He's pointing toward a different way of measuring whether China's slowing down or not. And he and quite a few others, including me, we are bullish in the long term on the Chinese economy. Now, Chinese leaders could drive it into a ditch. They could make errors. They could turn off American foreign direct investment. But I don't see that happening. It seems to be the opposite. American investment in China is increasing the last two or three years. We are not decoupling from China. A lot of bumper sticker phrases you hear that the Chinese economy is collapsing, or COVID means the end because of all these lockdowns. It looks like from the indicators Tom Orlick points to, this is simply not happening. They're still on a growth path to remain two or three times, Jerry, faster growth rates than ourselves. That's the important thing in the Chinese mind, closing the gap with America in every indicator. And by the way, one of my books talks about the indicators China uses to measure its move toward primacy for being the number one power. They're very different from the indicators that the Wall Street Journal editorial board might use. So I beseech the Wall Street Journal editorial board to consider other points of view. <laughs>
0: of As I say, we're open to all kinds of free expression. But let me just push back a little bit on that. I mean, hasn't Xi Jinping's policy in the last few years, and I've just put COVID aside for the moment, Xi Jinping seems to have a pretty different view of the kind of the right structure for the Chinese economy than, say, Hu Jintao had or certainly even Deng Xiaoping he seems to believe in a much larger role for the state, state owned enterprises much bigger. He seems to believe in much tougher regulation. Look what he's done with technology. He's much more aggressive about, even more aggressive than the Chinese have been about the way in which foreign companies behave there. Isn't this turning off foreign direct investment? Isn't it? It's, the part of it is almost seems to be explicitly designed to turn off foreign direct investment. There's certain types of direct investment they don't want, like certain technology companies, because of you know, security considerations. Isn't the whole Trend of Xi Jinping's economic management away from FDI, away from that kind of investment-led growth. He wants to encourage consumer-led growth because it's a more mature economy and all those things. And isn't that itself just inevitably crimping China's economic prospects? I would say most American economists who look at China would agree with you.
1: They use American criteria. They use they mirror image and they say, well, this happened in America. Suppose we had the Tennessee Valley Authority was the model in the White House for how all America's top 500 corporations should be. That would be seen as insanity. Free market, free enterprise, deregulation, these are all the recipe, you might say, for rapid economic growth from the point of view of most American economists. So they see China as going down, and they can't understand it. But a few economists and I praise myself for believing them at the time, said, you know, state-owned enterprises for a country like China to avoid the middle-income trap, state-owned enterprises with directed investment works in high-tech areas. It works with rare earths. It works with a series of things that we saw listed. Ten areas were listed in the so-called Made in China 2025 strategy, which still exists. They've changed the name, like with the Confucius Institute, but the basic program still exists. Those 10 high-tech areas, the Chinese forecast was, within a couple of years from now, China will have the largest market share in all of them by a series of steps that China was encouraged to take, which it did. Who knew about cobalt in the Congo? Who knew about this large investment in artificial intelligence and how it affects Alibaba customer base? There's just a lot of things that state-owned Enterprises can do if you have brilliant leadership at the top. You're not supposed to do that, according to the West. You're supposed to have our corporate titans decide what to do, although our corporate titans sometimes make mistakes. There's no more Chrysler, for example. So the Sadon Enterprises approach that China has taken surprised most American economists. They shouldn't do that, it's stupid. But you step back and look at the results, the growth has been shocking. So, as I praise Justin Lin and his team's approach, those are the people we have to look at more carefully. And they seem to be saying the Americans are not waking up. The Americans are not cutting back direct investment. They are not establishing quotas. They used to analyze Bob Lighthizer, by the way, as a successful guy in Chinese geopolitics. They said Lighthizer's the guy from the mid-'80s under Reagan when he was deputy USTR. He brought down the Japanese threat of the time by making sure they had almost zero growth. He put a cap on their steel sales to the U.S., Lighthizer is not going to do that to China. And so they balked with President Trump and also with the current president. They balked at subsidies or state-owned enterprises being brought under control and restricted. So the sad thing right now is our foreign direct investment goes in large part to the state-owned enterprises, some of which directly aid the Chinese military. Now, Congress has talked a lot rhetorically about this shouldn't be happening. But effectively speaking, nothing's really been done, Jerry. So the Chinese strategy I maintain is working. And the Wall Street Journal editorial board view I wish was correct. Believe me, I pray it was correct, but I'm afraid it's not.
0: Well, let's talk about the politics in China then. You mentioned earlier that part of the calculation Xi Jinping has to make is that, you know, he's getting pressure from his hawks. And you even raise the possibility that he could face a, a putch essentially, against him if he gets things wrong. Let's talk about that because he's coming up, obviously, for this very important National Party Congress, probably in November. That's expected to kind of, I think, rubber stamp his unprecedented third five-year term. He's broken with the recent precedent in allowing himself a third five-year time, creating this cult, essentially a personality around him. At the same time, and again, let's put aside, we can agree to differ on the economy, but he's been some pretty serious missteps, I think, in China. I think most people do agree he's handled the COVID situation really quite badly. There's a lot of unhappiness about that. We saw this extraordinary scene in cities like shanghai earlier in the summer just over the lockdowns there he has been pursuing this very aggressive domestic sort of crackdown on dissent on free expression as it were he's completely subjugated hong kong breaking all the commitments he made again we outsiders even those with expertise and knowledge like you find it so hard it's impenetrable the chinese the leadership of china but as we come up to this critical national people's congress how much internal unease is there and dissatisfaction and how could that play out this is a topic That American presidents,
1: especially President Trump, are often fascinated by. How does power struggle work in China? How did Xi Jinping get in office? Can somebody pull him down in a coup? Please tell me in 10 minutes (laughs) how Chinese politics works. And I usually explain, I have my favorite examples that presidents often are shocked by it. The points you just made, Jerry, if you and I are on the Politburo and we believe what you just said, Xi Jinping is making blunders right and left. We've got to remove him or certainly deny him a third five-year term. What would we do? Well, we go around, and there's a book that lays this all out that came out last year. I think the journal reviewed it. It's by Roger Garside, a former British diplomat in Beijing I knew even back in the 70s. It's called Coup, and he shows how a coup could be mounted using the various arguments that you just listed against Xi Jinping, and that the West would basically support it because a more moderate leader would be put in place. The only problem is the security services in China report directly to Xi Jinping. And we've seen this happen at various points, especially in 1976, where the coup plotters are detected, reported, and then they're arrested and put in jail or allowed to commit suicide. A lot of this goes back to the last 2,500 years. The Chinese study a lot, and you can find this in their books (laughs) in Beijing, they study how emperors rose to power and took out the old emperor the techniques that were used, the role of security services, how discontented people have to be dealt with early. So that may be what's going on in Beijing now. There may be some, uh, and then some unfortunate Westerners have pointed to the Prime Minister, Li Keqiang, and said, well, this guy's more poor democracy. He's anti-state-owned enterprises. He doesn't really support all the harsh crackdown against Tibetans and Uyghurs. So it looks like this result of this Western comment that the prime minister could overthrow Xi Jinping is we're seeing the moderate prime minister being sidelined, and he may not even have a job for the third term that Xi Jinping gets. But trying to stage a coup, overthrow a leader in these circumstances when he has the security services on his side is a recipe for you and me, Jerry, being arrested and tortured and then allowed to commit suicide. That's what we face if we try to bring a more moderate leader to power in China. Are you with me? Let's go ahead and try to do it. Or do you think maybe you don't want to
0: have that kind of life in jail? <laughs> well, I'm all for heroism, but probably not. not. <laughs> Somebody else, right? Yeah, not in this cause, but for but, but me. But I mean, do you think then that despite the dissatisfaction, despite the unrest, a lot of concerns? By the way, we haven't talked about the, you know the this financial crisis going on with this extraordinary spectacle of you know lots of Chinese refusing to pay their mortgages because of the sort of the collapsing real estate in many Chinese cities. But despite all that, we can set aside really any serious talk of real resistance to Xi Jinping, resulting in something quite dramatic. We should not in any way be counting on any dramatic change, either in the personnel or indeed in the direction of China for the next few years.
1: No, 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 I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying, if you want to understand, why does Xi Jinping pay so much attention to his hawks? These people are sort of crazy, they're nationalistic, they're unstable, they write really bizarre articles in the press from time to time about how the Americans are trying to strangle China, which is the opposite of what we've been doing for 30 years. So surely Xi Jinping knows this and he disregards this hawkish advice. The answer to that is very important. If the hawks are wrapped up with the security services and making sure that a coup does not happen, you have to listen to the hawks, or at least pretend to. Xi Jinping used to be seen as a reformer. There's a very famous article by Chris Buckley, who'll get angry from me bringing this up, when Xi Jinping first took over, Chris Buckley wrote a prominent New York Times article, this is the new Gorbachev. I agree. A lot of people thought that. This is the reformer we've been looking for. <laughs> and it was so wrong, right?
0: It's funny how politicians can have a habit of turning out in this country too. And
1: maybe Xi Jinping was maneuvering. Yeah. Maybe he saw the rise of the Hawks, aligned himself with them, yeah. and is a much craftier politician than he's given credit.
0: Right. Finally, Michael, because I could talk about this all day, but again, you were at the 100-year marathon, which, again, as I said, PRC was founded in 1949, 2049. That'll be the 100 years they expect to have surpassed the US. Now, in history, whenever there is a dominant power in the world or in a region and a rising power emerges and challenges and threatens to surpass that power, there is quite often outright conflict. Not always. Graham Allison, a historian, wrote the famous book The Thucydides Trap, harking back obviously to the uh, Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta when exactly that happened in 5th century BC, Greece and it's happened again and again and again since then, whether it's the British and the Germans and the Spanish, the Dutch, you know, this is a historical pattern that does seem to repeat itself. The US is obviously seeking a peaceful way to manage China's rise. Can I just ask you, again, in conclusion, firstly, is it succeeding? It sounds, I think I know what the answer to that question is. And secondly, <laughs> what does it need to do to manage China's rise? And at the same time, can the two nations, can the two great powers coexist peacefully? Or is some sort of conflict inevitable in your view?
1: I don't believe in the inevitable conflict, inevitable war theory. I think it's often hyped to advocate policies toward China that otherwise wouldn't make sense. What I think is our problem as Americans, and I include European Union and Japan in this as well, we find it very difficult as democracies to negotiate with the Chinese because of our internal splits, our different points of view, our massive bureaucracies. So that President Trump used to ask me, how can I get leverage on Xi Jinping? And my answer was, we need to get control of our government. We have Commerce Department has its own China policy. They have its own annual meetings with their counterparts in China. The Defense Department has its own view of what to do about China. Very little of this reaches the White House, almost never reaches the President, but the Chinese know how to exploit differences within the American government. They're masters at it, and it happened back with Bill Clinton in particular. So, Mr. President, if you can get control of our government, we can use for leverage a lot of things that the president should know about, but does not. One of them is foreign direct investment. Another one is technology transfer authorities. Another one is the entities list. There's about 30 or 40 things we could do that when you next meet Xi Jinping, you would engage in this kind of discussion with him. But right now we can't until we get our own side together. So President Biden, I'm afraid, faces the same problem. I could mention people by name. I know Susan Rice very well. She has one view of China. She's made it very clear. It's quite different from the more hawk-like people who work for President Biden. So this problem of getting our own act together to have leverage over China to get them to reform and engage in changes that the Chinese moderates would like to see as well, this should work. We should have a partnership with the moderates in China, except they keep getting put in jail. (laughs) <laughs> they keep getting asked to commit suicide. So knowing better the hawks versus doves debate in Beijing, I think, is going to be crucial to the next 10 or 20 years because right now, Jerry, they manipulate our system brilliantly. We have only the vaguest notion of how Chinese politics at the very top works and how we could try to engineer a much better China from our point of view over the next decade or two than let the hawks in Beijing just sort
0: of rum rampant and control the leader no matter who he or she is. In practical terms, what should the U.S. be seeking? It's pretty obvious, and again, you make this clear in your book, China is seeking essentially a kind of hegemony in East Asia. It's got all of the kind of economic and military wherewithal to do that. It's long been U.S. policy you know, for the U.S. to retain a very understandable strategic and economic reasons to maintain its power in East Asia, and we have these alliances with East Asian countries, and a lot of it is about obviously containing China. First of all, is that still a realizable objective to maintain U.S. leverage and power in East Asia in the way that it has over the last, say, 50 years or so? And if it is attainable, are we doing enough to attain it?
1: I would say no, that we're in a different world now and the way the Chinese themselves write about this, they often refer back to the Warring States period and the spring and autumn period, when the word for strategist today in Chinese, the word for strategist in Chinese is a horizontal vertical expert. quite obscure, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Quite inscrutable. A horizontal alliance, horizontal meant east to west. Warring States China would line up against the great hegemon, Qin, by a coalition. The north-south Vertical alliance was the opposite. So they see something like the Quad, which first President Trump, now President Biden even more, are basically saying, Look, we have the Quad. China's encircled. We have India, Japan, Australia. You know, we're going to have these meetings. We're going to denounce you. So you better be afraid because we have the Quad. In Chinese history, the Quad coalition happened many, many times. And their Chinese statecraft was always to break up the other guy's coalition, and stealthily create your own. The Indians will not let the Quad be turned against China.
0: The Quad is Japan, India,
1: U.S., and Australia, right? That's right. That's supposed to be the answer with a capital A to China. Our great allied coalition somehow will encircle China. But it's not working, and the Chinese know it. They've worked really hard with the Indians to bring them over and say, don't be tricked by the American imperialists to denouncing your dear friend China, who, by the way, China has this enormous direct investment now in India. So every time the Quad is issued a press release, the American side tries to put in something about China, the Indians block it. This is one of many examples of how ancient Chinese statecraft is still at work. And frankly, Xi Jinping is a wonderful storyteller who in his speeches and articles, which are now put together in three volumes, he draws on all this 2,500 years ago set of stories of what does a smart leader do? when he's trying to go up against the hegemon and replace him, how does he behave? Does he provoke a war? Does he say harsh, terrible things? No, the opposite. You've got to convince at least some people in the old hegemon's team, I'm not a threat to you. Keep investing, keep buying my products, keep having the exchange programs. By the way, we'll work with you on climate change. And that is exactly what Xi Jinping is doing. This is my next book, Jerry. It's about how Xi Jinping uses metaphors from the ancient Chinese past to derive his current policies toward America. You want to buy a copy?
0: Absolutely. We'll have you back and talk about that when that's published, if we may, Michael. For the moment, we've got to end it there. Michael Pillsbury, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks for listening. Please do join us again next week for another deep exploration of the issues driving our world. Thanks very much and goodbye.